Psalm of the day is Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts against me are for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. For this I know, that God is for me, and God whose word I praise, and the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, we're reading verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning and hear challenging words, difficult words, We ask that you would incline our hearts to trust in you, that we would be willing to identify with our Lord Jesus, and by the strength of your Spirit that we endure, and that we hear everything that he says in these words. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began a new series in the book of Revelation, focusing in particular on the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3. We noted that John, the author of this apocalypse, all 22 chapters, was exiled for his faith on the Isle of Patmos, and he's looking out from Patmos onto the mainland where these seven churches somewhat sat in a circle around one another. And John has a vision, and it's inside of this vision that he hears our Lord Jesus address these seven churches. Now, for many people, when they hear the language of vision, it's just simply too much. It spooks them. It's just too weird. And this is what is the problem with the book of Revelation, is we just find it too weird. Because we think that a heavenly vision is something like escaping the here and now to tell us about the hereafter. 
But that's exactly what a vision is not. That the vision John has, the experience of seeing the heavenly realms, is not to escape the here and now, to tell us about the hereafter, but rather it's to reframe the here and now in light of a view from heaven. That John is swept up into heaven, into the heavenly court, and he sees earth from a different perspective. We're able to put everything in right relationship. That suddenly the things of earth, they grow dim. That they're not as important as they seem. And that is what John is doing for these churches through the word of Jesus that he hears. And specifically in the heavenly court, we saw at the end of chapter 1 that Jesus is walking amongst the seven lampstands. And we discover that these lampstands are the churches. They are the churches that he addresses. And as the priest was to do in the court of the temple, he was to tend to the lampstands. He was to trim the wicks. He was to fill them with oil. And if a lamp quit working, he was to remove it. And Jesus, in these letters, is tending to the lampstands to make sure that they are burning bright. And as we consider our role in God's world, it's important for us to remember this, that Jesus is tending to us as a body to lead us in what we should be in order to be of service to God in the world. What does He want us to look like? And so this week, we read the letter to the church in Smyrna. It is one of the few of the collection not to have a critique in it, simply a commendation. Arthur Godfrey, he was the famous American radio and television broadcaster. He was born in the early 20th century. He grew up in a very different world, obviously, than we live in today. And as a kid, on a lazy afternoon, he was fond of going down to the blacksmith shop. And he delighted seeing the blacksmith work with his anvil and forge to make things. On some visits, he would witness the blacksmith pick up pieces of metal from the scrap bin. And he would then evaluate them and determine whether they were going to be thrown into the fire and heated in order to be made into something useful or simply discarded into the trash bin, whether it was useful or not. And as he witnessed this as a child, he wrote a prayer for himself that he used throughout his life. It's very simple. The fire, Lord, not the junk heap. Give me the fire, Lord. Don't let me be thrown away into the junk heap. And this prayer is instructive for the Christian life because there really are only two options for us. It's the fire or the trash heap. Those are the options before us. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that anyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. In some way, we will face tribulation and trial because of our identification with Jesus, that we will be in the fire. Trial and tribulation belongs to us. If we are not in trial and tribulation, then we are only good for the trash heap. We are a lampstand that will be removed. And so everyone who follows Jesus will pay a price in some manner. But what is the potential price 
And these are the great lessons that we learn from the church in Smyrna. In verses 8 through 11, there are three particular things that we see about the potential price. The first is this, to follow Jesus can cost us financially. It does not always pay to be a Christian. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. We can reconstruct the events in Smyrna around what happened to this early Christian community because it also happened across the Roman Empire to many other Christian communities. And from the primary source of the Bible and other secondary sources, we've come to understand what happened to them. Smyrna was a great city. It was 35 miles north up the coast from Ephesus. It claimed to be the first city in beauty and population, rivaling all other cities in Roman Asia. And Smyrna had been one of the first adopters in the region of Roman emperor worship. They had done so in order to gain advantage with Rome, and they built several large temples in which they would adopt the Roman emperor worship and also the Roman system of gods. It was noted that Smyrna was one of the most enthusiastic adopters of the whole Roman system, and so it was strong. It's difficult for us to understand, but Roman religion and the economy were tightly bound together. To be a good citizen of Smyrna meant that you had to participate in the worship of the emperor and make certain offerings, and that if you didn't participate in those offerings, you were considered disloyal, unpatriotic. You were not a good member of the community. And these early Christians, when they began to encounter the claims of the city, that they needed to swear allegiance to Caesar, that they needed to confess that Caesar was Lord, and they needed to participate in the sacrificial offerings, it began to marginalize them. Trade guilds they were shut out from. There were markets that they would no longer be able to patronage. To be Financially prosperous in Smyrna meant that you needed to participate in this idolatrous system. And the Christian community stepped away from it. It was a complex system, and it cost them significantly. Not wanting to be joined to the idolatrous practices, they impoverished themselves. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. It can play out in a thousand different ways, but our faith in Jesus can cost us financially. When we are following after Him, there are implications on our lives that can then result in certain opportunities, certain jobs being closed to us. Certain things suddenly are shut down. As a young minister out of seminary, I worked with a group of young professionals, and there were several young businessmen in Memphis attempting to learn to make their way in the business world. And sitting down with them over lunch and getting to know them over the years, I became acquainted with how much pressure they felt like they were under. That there were certain things to gain clients that they felt like they needed to do 
or that their bosses expected of them. But they didn't feel like they were ethical requests. And how were they as a Christian to work this out? They needed to build their book of business. They needed clients and relationships. They needed to please their bosses in order to advance. And so how were they going to do that? They may be overlooked for promotions. They may not be able to provide for their family the way that they wanted to. They may not get the clients that they knew that they needed to obtain. But they also had big questions about the ethical appropriateness of certain things. They knew that they may not receive new job offers if their boss put in a bad word and said that they were just too stuck up and self-righteous. Friends, these are the kinds of things that our faith today can, can cost us. In the financial sphere, there can be many costs that are somewhat invisible. And for these early Christians, they accepted it. They owned it. That rather than to be part of the idolatrous practices of the culture around them, they were willing to suffer poverty, whatever it meant, that they would be faithful to Jesus. And are we willing to pay that price? Are we willing to see ourselves suffer financially, to lose our comfort and well-being in the area of finances in order to identify with Jesus if He asks that of us? And this is the first piece of suffering that we learn from the church of Smyrna, financial Second thing that we see here in verse 9 is that to follow Jesus will impact our reputation. And you can be sure of this one. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It is interesting to note that throughout the New Testament, the most fierce opposition that the apostles faced were from their fellow countrymen who did not share their faith in Jesus. It was the Jewish followers of the synagogue who most fiercely opposed the apostles' teaching and preaching. They didn't agree that Jesus represented the one true hope of all the ends of the earth, that He was the Messiah who was coming to deliver all things according to God's promise. They simply didn't agree. And so what happened is that the Jews operated under a certain license given them from the Roman Empire, that they did not have to offer emperor worship, that they had negotiated a deal sometime earlier across the empire, that they did not have to offer emperor worship, that they could could worship their one God. And for many years, the Christian community lived underneath that same license because they were seen as a branch of the Jewish religious practice. And the Romans weren't particularly worried with things unless it got disruptive. They were very politically expedient. They allowed for the worship of all kinds of gods, but they were opposed to upstarts that created a social stir. And so what we find in the New Testament and in other literature is that the Jews used this against the Christians, that they outed them, that they said they had another king beside Caesar, and they claimed that they were politically disruptive, 
They were even accused of being cannibals, that they ate the flesh of this one, Jesus Christ. They were called unpatriotic. They were called bad citizens. The Jews wanted the Christians to be recognized not under their license. They wanted them to be exposed to the full brunt of Roman persecution and power. And so, like our Lord Jesus, who was handed over by his fellow countrymen to the Romans for death, this is what played out in the first century with fervor and terror in certain punctuated periods. It was very difficult when they no longer operated under the license of the Jewish nation. And Jesus says that they were being slandered, they were being maligned. They were being misrepresented. Lies were being spoken about them. And if you've been in that situation, you know how desperately frustrating it is to be misrepresented by someone, for someone to speak things that are simply untrue in order to gain advantage, and that your enemies very rarely play fair. And these early Christians took the brunt of this. They were exposed. They suffered because they were slandered, and they lost their reputation. They lost business. They lost the ability to be in the social sphere. They were taken down and marginalized. Incredibly difficult to withstand and sustain. If you'll turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, Peter also addresses the churches in Asia who are suffering many of these similar things. In chapter 2, verse 23, he writes, When he, speaking of Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised, verse 12, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And then in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator, while doing good. That our Lord Jesus also suffered from the loss of a reputation. He was maligned. He was lied about. He was mis misrepresented. He was mistreated. And these early Christian communities were given the opportunity to identify with Him in the loss of their reputation. And when we follow Jesus, and not in a self-righteous and self-congratulatory way, but in meekness and humility, even in meekness and humility, we will suffer the loss of reputation. That the world around us does have very different values and a very different system of thinking. And we can understand and be sympathetic for how they've arrived where they are, but we deeply disagree. We believe that there's another king we believe that there's another future for the world. We believe that there's another way of living in God's world. 
that is better and leads to our flourishing. And there are times where that vision, that Christian vision, infuriates and angers those around us. Peter says, don't be surprised. And so we can't be surprised when it costs us and when it particularly costs us our name. This is the second thing that we learn from the church in Smyrna. The third piece is that to follow Jesus can involve the loss of worldly comforts. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus predicts that they were about to enter into a more fierce trial, that some would be thrown into prison, and he mentions it may lead all the way to death. Be faithful all the way to that point is Jesus' admonition. There is a strange reference that they would be tested for 10 days. They would have this tribulation. And in the book of Revelation, one of the most important things when you read the book to literally read the book of Revelation is that you have to interpret symbols symbolically. (laughs) And this is one of those many symbols inside the book of Revelation where John tightly weaves, and through Jesus' speech, allusions back into the Old Testament. And this is from Daniel chapter 1 in verses 12 through 15, where Daniel and the young men who were called out from Israel to live in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar and to be trained in the highest and finest arts of the Babylonian empire, they refused to eat from the king's table because of idolatrous practices surrounding that table. And so they requested a 10-day fast where they would be fed vegetables and that they would be strengthened by God. And the eunuch who was in charge of them agrees to that. And says, if you are strong and vital at the end of 10 days, we will allow you to continue to only eat vegetables. But they had protested. They didn't want to be part of the idolatrous practices. And so for 10 days, they had trial and tribulation. Jesus pulls down on this imagery and applies it to these Christians that there will be a bounded period in which you suffer. There will be trials, and it gets worse than the loss of reputation or the loss of financial gain. That it can go to the loss of your worldly comforts. It can involve imprisonment. It can involve all the way to death. In 115, a man named Polycarp was consecrated as the bishop of Smyrna. In 156, he was martyred. He died at 86 years old. This puts him being born somewhere around 70 A.D. And church tradition tells us that he knew the Apostle John. The book of Revelation is most likely written around 90 A.D. And so it's provocative to think of the young Polycarp hearing these words. And that some 66 years later, He still heeded them, and he listened. Polycarp's Polycarp's followers in 156, they, they escorted him out of the city because they heard that the Roman governor was looking for him. 
They took him away and tried to hide him, but the soldiers found him. And when they found him, he didn't fight. He requested two hours to go and pray. He was then dragged back into the city, and he was taken into the arena where a crowd had gathered. And it was a crowd particularly of Jewish people. And he was asked to swear allegiance to Caesar. Say Caesar is Lord. Renounce your Christ, is what the governor said. Polycarp's response, he says, I have served my Lord Jesus these 86 years, and he has done me no harm. Why would I renounce him now? And the governor then says, but I have wild beasts. And he says, bring your beasts. And I have fire. And he says, bring your fire. They then proceeded to stack wood up. Polycarp refused to allow them to tie him to the stake. He said that he would hold himself there. And it was a windy day, unfortunately. And the fire burned very slowly. And Polycarp gave himself as a martyr for the cause of Christ. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't searching for that opportunity. But an 86-year-old man gave himself, who would have heard these very words, be faithful unto death. We can also talk about St. Valentine. We only know him after a romantic holiday, really. But St. Valentine is an interesting figure in the history of the church. He lived in the third century. Claudius II, who was also known as Claudius the Cruel, was attempting to raise a Roman army from the city of Rome, and he was having difficulty doing so. And what he believed the problem was is that men were too in love with their wives and their children to join the army. And so Claudius the Cruel outlawed engagement in marriage. Thought it was a bad idea for his army. So he, he does away with engagement in marriage. You can imagine the response. But Valentine, as a pastor in the church, continued to marry people in secret. He believed it was an ordinance of God. And it didn't matter what Claudius said that he would marry people and join them together, that there was a law that was more important to obey, and it was the time for civil disobedience. And so Valentine was arrested, he was beaten, and he was beheaded. February 14th, 278, church tradition tells us. Friends, this is the great legacy that we stand on as those who profess faith in Jesus those who have been willing to go all the way to death, been willing to give of all of their life, even down to their last breath. God doesn't require that of all of his followers, but he does require it of some. And the question for us is, how do we know whether we're prepared? How do we know whether we would be like Valentine? Do we have the courage of Polycarp? If we are asked that question, what would we do would all the nervousness of compromise, would that overwhelm us? Or in our frailness and our meekness, would we say, no, Jesus is better to me than life? Perhaps the best way to answer the question of are we willing to die for Jesus and so identify with him is much more practical. Are we dying for him daily, taking up our cross and following him? And I think the answer that we give to that question, when we evaluate our daily patterns and our weekly habits, 
when we look at our lives now, is the answer that we would give then if it were ever required of us. It's the same ethic. It takes the same character. It takes the same strength of God's Spirit. But this is what we learn about persecution. It can be complete across our lives. It can involve our finances. It can involve our reputation. It can involve all of our worldly comforts, including our bodies. This is what Jesus is speaking to this church. And the question for us is, how do we endure such conflict? How do you survive something like this? And does God have resources for us in the midst of such difficulty? As I mentioned earlier, Jesus doesn't have a word of critique for Smyrna, but He has loads of commendation and affirmation. And there are four resources specifically that we find God offering to His people in the middle of trial and difficulty. First, this. Our Lord identifies with us in trial and tribulation. Verse 9, the first words, I know your tribulation. One of the most difficult things about suffering is what C.S. Lewis calls the suffering inside of suffering. It's the loneliness of it. It's the feelings of being misunderstood and misrepresented, of going down in just utter desolation and feeling apart from the whole world and made to be a fool. But Jesus offers us this, I know. And Jesus doesn't ask us to go anywhere that he himself has not already walked, that he has gone before us all the way to Golgotha. And he has been vindicated by God. And he says to us now, from his heavenly seat at God's right hand, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He identifies with us. And so in the middle of the loneliness of suffering and being misunderstood and marginalized and ostracized and cut off, Jesus speaks a word of affirmation to us that he understands, that he gets it, and that we can find tremendous comfort in identifying with Jesus in the middle of what the world calls foolishness, that we say, no, this is the way and the path of life. And so this is the first resource our Lord Jesus identifies with us. Second, our benefits don't change. Verse 9 again, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and then parentheses didn't really exist in the original, but here they are, but you are rich. Jesus just inserts this into the middle of the sentence, but you are rich. And what is he saying? He's saying that our spiritual benefits, because we're united to him, don't change. All the benefits of grace are ours. And no matter what man does to you, what can flesh do to you is the question from Psalm 56. And Jesus' resounding answer is they cannot take away what I've given to you. You are rich in me. You have been set right with God, justified. You have been adopted and brought into his family. You, have been, you will be glorified and inherit God's new world. These are the benefits of grace. You are rich. This is your inheritance, Jesus is saying. And no one can steal it. No matter what they do to you, it can't be taken away. It belongs to you. And in the middle of hardship, this is what we have to own. Because we all ask the question, is it worth it? 
And Jesus speaks back to us that we're rich, that yes, it's worth it, and that we have to work hard and dig down deep to set our minds on that heavenly inheritance of that great future glorious day where God makes all things right. The third piece of encouragement that God gives to the church, the resources that He extends to us today, is that our God is unfolding His plan. In verse 10, they are instructed, exhorted not to fear, and then they are told that their tribulation will be for 10 days. That is a bounded period. And God is indicating here that He knows it's coming and that it has its purpose. And that we can put our fears to death because even when everything seems to be breaking into chaos, that God has somehow not lost control of everything, that our trials and tribulations are not enduring, that they will end. Viktor Frankl, who was a psychotherapist in Europe in the wake of the Holocaust, he wrote a very important and helpful book called Man's Search for Meaning. He's not a Christian, but he taps into very deeply Christian themes And what he discovered in counseling people on the other side of the Second World War is that those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. That if people understand the purpose of their existence, if they understand a meaning to their sufferings, that they can bear with almost anything. This was the result of all of his study and all of his work with patients. And so what is the purpose of our sufferings? What is the point of it? And as you move into the book of Revelation, this is specifically the point of John's next vision. After Jesus dictates these letters to him to the churches, turn with me to chapter 5. John sees the heavenly court, the throne room, and there's a question being asked. In verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The next chapters, running into chapter 10 and chapter 11, tell the story of the opening of the seals. That's not the scroll. It's the opening of the seals that held the scroll shut. But there was one who was worthy to open the scroll. And then in chapter 10, and particularly in chapter 11, in verses 1 through 13, we find that the scroll itself is unraveled. And we find what our Lord Jesus reveals. And what He reveals is about how God is going to accomplish His great purposes to overcome evil and destroy it in the world and renew the world according to its original design. This is what happens in chapter 11. It's not an answer we particularly like, but in chapter 11 there are two witnesses It always requires two witnesses to confirm any fact in Jewish law. And so these are not two literal people, but two symbolic people who stand for the church. And the witnesses suffer at the hands of the nations, but then they are raised and vindicated. 
And this is what the scroll reveals. God's great victory will be won through the sufferings of the church as she in meekness identifies with Jesus and walks in His way and offers God's love to the world around it. This is God's plan. It lasts for a bounded period. It is difficult, and God's plan involves our trial and tribulation. That God's best life for you now involves identifying with Jesus, not in our just pure comfort. And so, friends, can we receive that? Can we receive that gladly, that the unfolding of God's plan it means that our sufferings are not the end of us, and that God is giving us an encouraging word that He will overcome, that the Lion of the tribe of Judah who conquered is your down payment and guarantee, that He was worthy to open the scroll, and He will finish it. And that leads us to the last point, the fourth piece of encouragement that we receive. Jesus will finish what He started. If you look back at the beginning of this short letter to Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. These are words used across the book of Revelation. You first find them in chapter 1 in verse 8, where God Himself is referred to as Alpha and Omega. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, Jesus is classed as the first and the last. Then at the close of the book, once again in chapter 21, we have God being Alpha and Omega. And in chapter 2, Jesus, Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end. And this isn't just a statement that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. It is that. It deeply confirms and affirms Jesus' identity as the true God. But the first and the last here in this letter in verse 8, the one who died and came to life, it is pointing us also to the fact that the first is that Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the wisdom of God, and God created all things in and through Him, that He is the author of creation, and that He will be the finisher of creation. He will be the author of new creation. He will make all things right. The one who died and came to life this is your guarantee that if you belong to Jesus, He will also take the dust from your grave, no matter how many pieces someone may have scattered you into, and He will raise your bodies to inherit His new world. Those are the ones who conquer. And Jesus says they are not hurt by the second death. Those who have faith in Him that you will be part of God's world where all things are made right. And so, friends, we have two options. We have the fire and we have the junk heap. The fire is for all who identify with Jesus. In some way, we will pay the price for following Him. And in the middle of that price, God calls us to rejoice because we're part of His great company of people where the evil of the world is being rolled back, it's being undone, and He's renewing all things. And so we can rejoice, as Peter says. That's what our God has for us as we serve Him. Let's take up that role of being a lampstand in the world.
Let's pray. Father, these are hard words, and it can be difficult for us to know how to hear them. We live in a unique country in the history of the world, and yet we also know that there are costs to identifying with Jesus, and oftentimes they're much more subtle. So help us to know how to appropriate this. Give us the kind of character that's willing to stand with Christ through all things. Lord, may our love be purely and solely fixed on you. And may we long for the great day of the renewal of all things and be willing to give ourselves completely and wholly to that task. We pray in Christ's name.